This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Welcome to Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. Off the subs bench, hopefully to exceed XG, the Divock Origi of the operation. I'm Guy Clark, and alongside me, our continual output merchant, it is, of course, Mohamed Salah. I mean, sorry, Josh Williams. Josh, how are we? <laughs> I'll take that, mate. Uh, yeah, I'm good. We forgot to let our listeners know last week, didn't we, that Dave was actually going to be off for this. Um, but you are a more than capable stand-in, mate, to have faith in you. Well, you've more faith in, in me than I do. But anyway, as you say, Dave is off for the week, so... Unfortunately, lumbered with me. The show must go on and to do that as well, though. Thanks to you guys listening in as ever. We reached out to you for your questions for a Q&A in today's episode and you haven't disappointed. Josh has been busy sifting through, I think, over 100 questions, haven't you, Josh? Yeah, 24 hour window and we get over 100 questions. So, you know, incredible stuff, really. So, you know, for all those who, who submitted questions, you know, thank you. And we'll do our best to get round to yours today, but... You know, with, with the being over 100 and us having an, an hour window, it's going to be tricky, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. Yeah, we've, we're going to get to the Q&A, but we've also got Villa to talk about high defensive lines, goalkeeping and all of that. So we're going to use your questions really to try and get through that as much as we can. But as Josh says, if we can't get to all of them, apologies in advance. But Josh, before we get to the, the listener questions, we best sort of talk about Aston Villa. Nobody saw that one coming. What were your initial sort of thoughts and reactions to the games? Have you Have you calmed down now? It was it, it was a tough watch. Must be honest, it was um, certainly not expected before the game, and I think I might have predicted the two-one. Um, didn't know Mane was going to miss the game. I don't think. I can't remember what other news came out. Allison was obviously out. We will get to that sort of stuff, but I've never really seen a game like here from a Liverpool perspective. It's it's the heaviest defeat Liverpool have ever ever had in the Premier League. Um. And it, it did get to a point in the game where I, I just started laughing, really. It, it got beyond the the hurt and the anger. And it, it got to the point where it was just, OK, this is this is a bit weird now. This this is unprecedented, really. Yeah, how do you looking at the, the numbers even then sort of try, try and fathom it? Because looking at sort of, as you say, that the expected, the underlying numbers, it wasn't a 7-2 at all. In fact, it was probably half of a 7-2, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, but at the same time, if, if you're giving away that much, you are open to, to conceding virtually every shot, especially when you've got added in, in goal. Um, so the expected goals on the day, Liverpool posted 1.8, which is usually fine, really. It's in the region of what we post most weeks, I suppose. Um, maybe a little bit higher around the field. But we, we faced 3.9 XG, Um which is a lot. That that's that's high for perspective. Last season when we lost three 0 to away to Wofford, Wofford posted two point two. So for Villa to post three point nine, I didn't go back and check, but that that's gotta be probably the highest that Klopp has um, allowed Liverpool to face uh, as Liverpool boss. I think when we lost five 0 I think it might have been to City last season. They were just clinical really City but I don't think they created absolutely loads of clear cut chances like Villa did there was also um, obviously that the 5-0 
earlier on in his reign, wasn't there, away at City when Mane got sent off. But I suppose you caveat that against being down to, to 10 men. It's just so bizarre on Sunday. Yeah, well, even that one, I recall Leo, Leo Sane scoring from outside the box. I think Gundogan might have scored from outside the box at the time. This one was different. Um, and this one was with 11 men. It was it was just, I've never seen anything like it. So Liverpool took 14 shots. Aston Villa took 18. Not much in that. Um, 11 shots on target for Aston Villa. 8 for Liverpool. Liverpool had 69% of the ball, so... I mean, if you showed me them numbers before the game, I'd expect Liverpool to lose, certainly facing 3.9 XG. I'd expect Liverpool to lose maybe... If Alisson was in goal, I'd expect Liverpool to lose that maybe 3-2. Something like that, 3-1 maybe. But for it to get to 7... I mean, I must admit, it, 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 it's it's not... It, it doesn't happen. It, 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 this is not going to happen again. Like, three deflections, three massive deflections... A gift inside five minutes from your goalkeeper, and a set piece, you know, c- c- conceding from a set piece. That that's not going to happen every week. So it it was just very much Liverpool playing terrible, combined with absolutely awful luck, bad fortune, um, combined with high risk football, and all all that was kind of a recipe for for disaster on the day, if you like. Yeah, it certainly did seem that way. And I suppose, as you, you mentioned that early goal, Ollie Watkins in, in the third or fourth minute of the game, that XG at sort of 0.5, it was it really was a gift that Villa were given early on in the game. You mentioned, before we get on to, to the questions, and we'll, we'll get to them in due course, but you mentioned the amount of shots that Liverpool faced in the game, 18. Remarkably, in looking at the, the shot location, the map of it, 13 of those were in the box as well. That It just doesn't seem to be something you associate with this defensive setup that Liverpool have. Yeah, it was just a product of the bad performance on the day. Particularly, you know, we're going to talk about the high line stuff. There's thousands of questions we got on that. Um, and I will say that any, any questions that you sent in on Villa, I'm, I'm I'm talking about that now, so we won't be addressing your question individually. This we're talking about that right now, but yeah, it was just it was just one of them where we had we had no cohesion, no pressing from the front, no protection for the back four defensive line, um, and when we had the ball, just just poor decisions being made. Joe Gomez was just giving the ball to the oppo- opposing team. Trent's elaborate possession play was. Not what it usually is. Firmino was kind of um, I've I've used from I've described Firmino in the past as kind of offering a bit of a a bit of a glue in the decisive areas of the pitch close to goal. What you know in and around the opposing goal, it's difficult to keep possession. And Liverpool have got plenty of risk takers in and around those areas. Firmino offers the glue in that in that sort of thing. Um, t- on on this day, he didn't. You know, he was just another player who just drifted into the background, kept losing the ball, got bullied a little bit. It was just a, a bad day all round. But in terms of conceding seven, it was not that bad. It was just... The reason we conceded seven was just an accumulation of terrible luck and bad decisions. And it was just an all-round horrible day. I think Klopp said after the game that it was... Um, Anything that could have gone wrong and everything that we could have done wrong ourselves, we did. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, no, definitely. I think you've allayed a few people's fears there because I think there, there was maybe a feeling that the key to the, the lock had been found and maybe this was going to undermine Liverpool. Let's get on to the questions then. And first up, we've just labelled it various because there were so many asking about it. The high line, Josh. Right, the high line. Uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad I've got questions on this because uh, something needs clearing up here. So the high line is fine. It, it, this is not a question of the high line, but everybody has used the high line to describe what they think is the problem. So Liverpool are a high-pressing team. To to do a high press, you have to have a high line. You have to be compact to press. Um, otherwise, your press, say for example, Salah and Firmino press on their own and the midfield isn't backing them up and the defence isn't backing them up, you can get played through quite easily. So the high line is a must and the high line is fine, providing, and this wasn't the case of Villa, providing the pressure ahead of the high line is is quite intense. The way a high line gets exploited is the space in behind. But that space in behind doesn't get exploited much against Liverpool because the likes of Henderson, Wijnaldum, Fabinho, Salah, Mane, they're on top of the opposition don't give you the second to look up and think which pass can I make to exploit that high line so teams don't get a chance um, what this issue is about is the offside trap it's it's not a high line thing it's an offside trap thing um, that, that's where the risk comes in That that's where you know there's a question mark attached to whether it's a good idea whether it's a bad idea sort of thing but I think it's it's not something Liverpool have always done. It's something that we've done, in my opinion, we, we referenced this last season, it's something that Liverpool have done since last season, since the introduction of VAR in particular. And that, that that's a calculated risk. You know, if Liverpool know that they need to catch the opposing player offside by, you know, an inch, whatever it may be, for his shoulder to be offside or whatever it is, it gets given. You know, so Liverpool have got certainty that that if they catch an opposing player offside, it, it'll get given. If they don't catch an opposing player offside and he's still on goal, they then have to beat Alisson Becker in a 1v1, which is easier said than done. So considering those two massive, massive aspects, Liverpool are deeming it to be worth the risk. But... It, it it is a it is a risk because of that because if it, if it, if it gets beaten if opposing players get through they do gain a one v one and you know that more often than not that will probably result in the goal especially if Adrian's in goal as opposed to Allison. Yeah, I think you obviously spot on with the the whole pressing thing. It did it did feel at times as though Liverpool's midfield wasn't there, which is so sort of abnormal. And point you make on the the high press, I think it's forty one extra offsides Liverpool have got than any other side in the Premier League since the beginning of last season, which is quite remarkable. It's pretty much a, an offside every game more that Liverpool are, are getting there for than the next best in the league, who I think are, are West Ham United. But one game that sort of springs to mind for me, I think it was Wolves at home last season around Christmas time turn of the new year I can't remember if it was an equalising goal or a goal to go ahead Pedro Neto scored it and was really giving it some in, in front of the main stand at Anfield but that got disallowed by VAR as you're saying for pretty much his studies toenail being offside but 
it's what it's there for and it, it does prove that it it does work this is one game in which maybe it has been unhinged let's get to some more of the questions then and Panu Irola and Abhinav uh, Sharma apologies if I've pronounced any of those names wrong says what were the biggest differences when compared then to the Liverpool Arsenal game and then obviously this game against Aston Villa I feel you're probably going to say that intensity that we certainly saw at Anfield that was lacking at Villa Park yeah, well, in terms of statistical differences, it's it's a complete different ball game. I mean, it, when it comes to dominating the opposing team, Liverpool did exactly that really against Arsenal. Um, just trying to get the numbers up now, but I'm pretty sure that Arsenal, despite Liverpool playing the same high line, and this is the perks of the high line, Arsenal took four shots in the game. Liverpool took twenty-one. Um, and then against Aston Villa a week later, you're playing with largely the same system, albeit without Allison, without Mane, but with everyone else pretty much the same, I think. Um, you face 18 shots. It's not the high line that's much of an issue, really. Providing Everton in front is is intense. And Everton, you know, Everton is the midfields working, the front three are working. I mean, obviously, Mane was out. That that can influence things. Jokes are, but Jokes is a good pressure of the ball, so it shouldn't have happened the way it happened. But in terms of you know making sure that the result is taken care of as much as it possibly can be by your own performance, Liverpool against Arsenal and Liverpool against Aston Villa was was polar opposites. You know, Liverpool posted. I mean, according to Understat, which looks at the numbers of the game and gives a team a percentage chance of, of, of winning. Understat looked at the expected goals against Arsenal, the shots, the shots on targets, the possession, all that sort of stuff. And without looking at what the result was, Understat reckoned that Liverpool had a 75% chance of winning that game um, based on the performance. Against Villa, Liverpool had a... 14% chance. Um, Aston Villa had 70%. So it's, it, it, it was a complete massive difference despite roughly the same game plan almost. I mean, I suppose you've got to give a lot of credit to Aston Villa at the same time. They had a completely different game plan to Arsenal. And, and it, you know, it worked. Yeah, it certainly did. And they certainly did get the benefit of things. Let's get to uh, another question then. Peter Fleming says, in the in the Villa game, it was quickly obvious that a number of players weren't on their game, yet no substitutions were made until the second half. How has Klopp's substitution strategy changed games? And does he ever make first half changes of personnel? Um, yeah, this is an interesting one. This. Uh, I, I, I don't think Klopp ever really... Everybody does make first team, uh, first first half substitutions, early substitutions, that sort of thing, unless it's to protect the player who's having a really terrible day. Like Lovren comes to mind against Spurs, that was an early one. Taking Joe Gomez off against Aston Villa, eventually taking Naby Keita off at half time. Was it half time? Might have been just after half time against Villa. Um. So yeah, it's I think it's a protection thing more than. Anything. Um, in terms of making substitutions in the game, I think Klopp makes more more fitness based substitutions than, than a lot of coaches considering, you know, is the intensity and is the great is the grade that I think he's got in sports science and all that sort of stuff. I think he considers that more often than say for example a Roy Hodgson. 
Um, and I think when it comes to making tactical substitutions, we don't make that many. It, it does seem to be keeping the four three three. Usually, maybe we'll make a, a switch to four two three one if if we need to claw back a goal or if we're facing a back five and we want to pin that back five back by using a four two three one. The front four can kind of pin back the back five if if the spacing is right, sort of thing. But yeah, I, I don't think substitutions, to be honest, that something that I'm overly concerned about. With Liverpool, considering by that point, we usually have the results decided, really. Yeah, it certainly does seem to, to be that case. So I'll pair a couple of questions here together then. Ahmed uh, Go, Gokal says, is the goal leaking against Villa and Leeds a sign of decline in the defensive structure? And we've also got Victor saying, is there any need to change and tweak our system according to opponents? He feels as though Klopp's always stubborn and persist and persistent to some players, even when they're not performing. So is there a decline in the defensive structure and Ultimately, do Liverpool need to look at rectifying how they line up against certain teams? Well, in terms of Villa and Leeds, I think I need to make a big a big point on this one. Liverpool conceded three against Leeds. Okay. Liverpool conceded seven against Aston Villa. They both look like bad defensive performances on the face of it sort of thing. But they, they weren't. They were, they were completely different. Completely different games. And this is, this is kind of a bit of a... Um, an alternative perception that I think I would like to m- more people in football to start looking at. Myth busting. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to look at the results, look at how many Liverpool have conceded, and saying that was a bad defensive performance. But against Leeds, Liverpool faced I think only six shots, um, and I think only three were on target, and all three found a net. Now, in any match, really, where you're facing six shots and half of them are on target, that's a that's a good defensive performance, really. If you're if you're keeping the opposing team to six shots and you're taking, I think it was twenty two yourself, that is a good defensive performance. Like so, like I think I referenced a few weeks ago that you know Liverpool conceding goals against Salzburg and you know teams like that. And somebody said that Liverpool had a bad defensive performance against Atletico in the Champions League at Anfield. Now, they've said that because Liverpool on the day conceded, I think it might have been three after extra time. But the actual defensive performance for the whole game, as in keeping the opponents away from your goal and restricting them from taking shots, it was great. So there's a, there's a big difference between conceding goals and being bad defensively. Big difference. Um, and the other side of the question was, what was that again? Do, do Liverpool then need to sort of tweak the system? If if it's not a bad defensive uh, showing, then against certain oppositions, do Liverpool need to sort of tweak how they go about games? Well, I think we do. Uh, um, I think it's it, it might go beneath the surface a little bit, but I do think we do that. Like I think, say for example, against Atletico, Liverpool played the usual four three three and the usual principles of high press and high defensive line intensity and all that sort of stuff but we played Oxley chamberlain on the right of the midfield the midfield three that is and he alongside Saleh and trent kind of formed a little a trio out wide and they just focused on gaining wide overloads against atletico madrid because because of how good Simeone's team are at blocking off the center 
So if you just overload the, the wide areas, you could argue that that is an alternative tactic, if you like, an alternative approach. Um, against certain other teams in the Premier League, maybe we will, again, line up with a 4-3-3. But with, say, for example, with Thiago in the side, maybe we'll use Thiago's central penetration more against, you know, Newcastle than we will against Manchester United. You know, so there's different... I think we'll always impose dif- different tactical approaches, different ideas against every opposition. It's just, it won't always be absolutely clear to see if, if we're setting up with the usual players and the usual 4-3-3. And finally then, before we move on to some sort of deeper questions around the Liverpool squad and the system at large, uh, Matt Haycock says, I know only time will tell, but do you see the Villa result as another pivotal game in Klopp's reign? I think he's referring there to some of the other heavy defeats Liverpool have had. They've always bounced back well. Is this going to be a game that we look back on in time and say that was the moment something changed or is this one just a blip? This is tricky. I, I, I am inclined to think it's a it's a anomaly. It's, it's a bit of a blip. I, I like to call it a wake-up call, really. Um, because I don't think Liverpool need to learn any more lessons ta- tactically, at least specifically Klopp. Like I think when we got B four one at Spurs, I think we had both fullbacks, you know, bombing on down the line. And I think from that match onwards, Klopp kind of learned that his his protection and the players behind the ball has to be a lot better. I think when we face Sevilla. In the Champions League, and we were three 0 up at half time, and we ended up drawing three three. That was kind of a lesson. We need to be better on the controlling side, in terms of managing match scenarios, sort of thing. And then, so shock, we bring in Allison, Van Dijk, and Fabinho, all of whom are quite cool headed and able to manage situations more so than the the intense players maybe that we'd bought before that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it's a big deal. I think it's maybe just, I think after Liverpool dominated Chelsea, dominated Arsenal, beat beat Leeds four three, saw that Manchester City had dropped points already. Maybe Liverpool took the took, not not necessarily complacency, but just a bit of, we don't even need to be at our best to win this league, and maybe this is a bit of a wake up call that, you know, yes, you do sort of thing get yourself get yourselves to grips yeah we'll have to wait and see how that one does play out let's move on then and talk about goalkeeping we'll start at the back end of the pitch and maybe work our way forward we'll have to see how we go with this but um yeah Adrian came in for a lot of criticism after the game Josh and uh, Declan Griffith sa- uh, Griffin says uh, is there much of a difference in overall performance when Adrian starts or is the difference actually minuscule we're all sort of talking about Adrian but how much of a, an impact a difference does he, rather than Alisson, actually make? Well, his actual impact on Liverpool's performance, at least, between both boxes, it shouldn't really be that big because he's a goalkeeper. So Liverpool should still be able to dominate. Liverpool should still be able to take 20-plus shots while keeping the opposing team to about 5 or 10. That shouldn't change. It did change against Villa, for whatever reason, so... You know, that that wasn't that wasn't Adrian's fault. Um, but in terms of the performance levels, it it shouldn't really take much of a hit. I don't. I, I think he 
he maybe offers a bit of a negative when it comes to building from the back and stuff like that because he's not as good with his feet as Allison is. But Liverpool should still be a great, you know, a, a, a great team, really, being able to simply dominate the attacking side while dominating the defensive side as well. It's as simple as that, really. And, but when it comes to the individual level of Adzi and, and Allison, specifically when it comes to facing shots, which I'm sure you're going to ask me about, there's a there's a chasm, there's a big gap. Yeah, we will get to, to that one. And actually, John Achterberg and the whole goalkeeping structure, actually, we've got a really interesting question on that to, to get into. But before that, on Allison, we'll focus on him for a little bit. Uh, Jared Benny and, and various people have got in touch on this one. Obviously, Allison was injured at the beginning of last season. He picked up that injury, actually, uh, that missed the Atletico Madrid game. And he would have missed the derby had, obviously, the lockdown and everything not happened. So the question is, are you worried that Allison might be becoming slightly injury prone and if so is Adrian good enough to be the backup or should Liverpool have looked for an alternative that better suits the playing style yeah well I, I actually wrote about this this week for Liverpool.com so if you want to if you want to read that I assume if you just google you know Liverpool.com Adzi and Josh Williams I assume it'll come up and it was kind of an opinion piece really but it is a bit. I tweeted it as well. It is a bit of a concern because I think when you sign a backup goalkeeper, um, you expect them to play at most the domestic cups, um, and you expect your primary goalkeeper to play in the majority of the the major competitions. That isn't really the case at the minute. Um, I think last season, Adrian played about one thousand to 1,500 minutes in the Premier League and the Champions League. That is not ideal. Um, and you're leaving yourself open a little bit to the elements of chance because Liverpool might keep the opposing team down to five shots, six shots a game. But if those shots are going against Adrian, there's just a risk that he's just going to concede them. Um, and it, it has got to the point a little bit with me where... Liverpool could concede a completely legitimate goal and rather than me thinking, fair enough, I'm overly keen to look at what Adrian was doing and thinking to myself, could he have done better there? Even if he couldn't have. And I don't want to be thinking like that. It was how I thought with Minule. It was how I thought with Carius. And Adrian is, is in the same bracket for me. Yeah, on that then, we've got a quick one that we can just sort of knock on the head here from Paul Whelan. says, do you think with Alisson now missing for a while that Liverpool should adopt a slightly less higher line? We've already spoke, of course, quite a bit about the, the high line than they have at the start of the season. In addition to Alisson being a far superior keeper than Adrian, Alisson would also seem to be more of a sweeper, keeping, sweeper keeper helping to reduce that gap between the defence and goalkeeper. So not the sweeper keeper playing out from the back part here is uh, Paul getting at it seems sort of more on that actually sweeping up the sweeper part of being a sweeper keeper yeah well it's, it's an interesting question because I have thought about it myself but then it, it kind of there's a bit of confliction there because you you would think that a high defensive line would um, kind of leave the goalkeeper a little bit vulnerable sort of thing but it, it in a way it does the opposite Um and the reason it does the opposite is because one of the perks of a high defensive line, the reason a high defensive line is is employed by the best coaches in the world, 
is because it, it does result in you facing about five, six shots a game as opposed to maybe 13 or something like that. Because you're defending so far from goal and you're so dominant for large periods, it does result in you, it, it should result in your goalkeeper not having much to do. Um, I understand he's obviously going to be a bit vulnerable when when the opposing team do get in every now and then. Maybe if it's just once or twice a match, then he's got to deal with a 1v1. That's less than ideal for Adrian. But at the same time, the high line should keep shots away from him. It keeps the ball as far away from him as possible. Like, for example, Europe's top five leagues last season that seemed to face the fewest number of shots in Europe per 90 was Manchester City. Obviously, to play with a high line, they faced six per 90. Then you've got Getafe. I think they've got a pretty intense press. Chelsea, they had a bit, bit of a deep press, a bit of a you know high press. Liverpool are up there. Bayern Munich are up there. Um, so these teams are playing with a high press, and as a result, they're giving the goalkeeper less to do, not more to do. But I understand in terms of he's not he's far from ideally suited to being a sweeper, so... It's, just, it's a question for Klopp, I suppose. Yeah, I think interesting there that you mentioned Chelsea didn't face as many shots per game. Obviously, we, we've spoken on this yeah. podcast plenty about Kepa Aritha Balaga. But uh, anyway, let's get on to uh, more of the, the goalkeeping stuff. And Al J says, uh, have the normally excellent Liverpool anal- analytics team perhaps got a blind spot to goalkeepers? Too much reliance on John Achterberg with a number of errors over the years except for Alisson. This is a really interesting one for me, Josh, because we see so many teams when they're looking to recruit a goalkeeper effectively get it wrong. It's a difficult one to sort of put a goalkeeper into a certain system. You don't know until they're there, maybe, how well they're going to perform. Yeah, well, I'm not so sure it's a blind spot. I think it's possibly more of a, I think, a perception in the past that a goalkeeper isn't worth that much um, in terms of what he deserves from the budget. Obviously, Liverpool put probably the majority of their budget towards attacking players because they make the difference. And I think in the past, maybe we looked at the goalkeeping position as not having that big of an impact. Hence why we buy, and hence why we signed Carriers for about six million. I think it was didn't really think too much of it. Obviously, I think we learn further down the line. It has a massive impact on particularly points and actually getting over the line, securing wins and stuff like that. Hence why we then paid 70-odd for, I think it was Alisson. And I think, again, looking at Adrian, it was deemed to be, you know, a value thing. What, how, how much is he worth? How much is a, a backup goalkeeper worth? Virtually pennies, really. So you dedicate pennies to it and you get Adrian in for a free, free transfer. I think the problem is he's now not really playing the role of a backup keeper. He's 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 starting more matches than you want him to start. And as a result of that, maybe Liverpool are gonna um assess down the line, you know, maybe the backup position for us is worth a little bit more and I'll dedicate maybe five million to it, ten million to it. But I think Liverpool have been really good at looking at each position in the squad and thinking to themselves, you know, how much is that position worth to us? Say for example, a backup left back for Andy Robertson. He's not gonna play much. Backup left backs worth about eleven million. We offer Jamal Lewis eleven million. Not to say no. So we get Costas Samikas for eleven million. You know, simple as that really. So I think it's a value thing, value things with positions and I think we realise with Alison 
I think we looked at Adrian and thought he's a backup keeper. He's just cheap. But now maybe that's getting that's getting reconsidered. Yeah, it must be a penny for Simon Mignolet's thoughts. We did get a question, incidentally, on uh, Loris Carriers, but just to let the, the uh, listener viewer know, he's moved out on loan, actually, to Union Berlin, so he's not even about for, for Liverpool to call upon. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Let's move on from the goalkeeping, though, and... Talk a bit maybe more about the system then at large. We've spoken about the high defensive line, but James Sweeney asks, why is Liverpool's defensive system looking so open since lockdown? We've said, by and large, actually, Liverpool have a good defensive uh, foundation, but James is, is seeing it differently right now, Josh. Yeah, it is, it's a tricky one, to be honest, because we haven't always looked that open. Um in, in certain games, we're absolutely flawless, and I think it's. We, we obviously we like to put proof in our little in our opinions on on this show, but I am inclined to lean towards maybe as a little bit of a mental thing, just switching off a little bit. Liverpool were so good for for two years when it comes to not even defending, when it comes to just zero mistakes, just no mistakes, complete concentration permanently no silly errors no gifts um, and we've started to play high risk football which we've always done really but now kind of with a bit of um, I don't know just not not complete focus not complete in control of situations just a little bit of yeah it's it's a difficult one to wear to, to cover really just a bit more the kind of approach that you do if you if you just won the league and you just won the Champions League and you just delivered 99 points and all that sort of stuff just not entirely taking care of absolutely everything um, but I think in terms of looking so open I do think a lot of it is probably just your eyes deceiving you considering offsides now aren't given until the ball has actually gone out of play and you're, obviously your heart's in your mouth holding on to things and stuff like that when it was never really a chance anyway but yeah it's I don't know it's a different it's an, it's an interesting one I'm not really sure where I stand on this one is it on this just a sort of my, my thought quickly on it just you and Dave often so often sort of say this whole Liverpool team front to back are almost analytics dreams in terms of these players put out numbers that really are mind-boggling week in week out on such a consistent basis on the point you're making there about the the concentration thing is it the players are, are, are showing they're human actually and sometimes within the data sets you, you can't legislate for it yeah it is possible i mean some people have mentioned about the lack of fans in the ground um which i suppose can have some sort of impact on intensity levels and focus um but yeah, Liverpool have been described by quite a few pundits really as as machines, really. And we have been a little bit like that for two years. You know, zero mistakes. Any goals that you get against Liverpool, you have to truly earn. And maybe we've given a few freebies out in the past few months since the title win. Um, yeah, it's a different one. It, it, it's a difficult one. Sorry, I'm not. It's not. It's not one that I'm prepared to commit to really at the minute. 
No, fair enough. Well, uh, Dyson Pele says, and I think this might be going back over a little bit of the ground we did cover before, but interesting point nonetheless. Is it my imagination or are players trying a lot more low percentage passes? Trent and Bobby especially seem to be trying more risky passes and when possession's lost, the rest of the midfield's out of position, which makes it easier for the opposition to progress up the field very easily. Is that the uh, game plan that Villa executed nailed on the head there? Well, I was going to say that 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 question probably stems from the Villa game, um, and it definitely did happen a lot at Villa Park. But I think I think certain players are just permitted to attempt low percentage passes. It, it's almost encouraged for certain players to just try things because they are the creative players. They are, they are the players who are responsible for opening things up compared to maybe a Wijnaldum who's responsible for just protection, security, keep things compact. So I think players like Trent in particular, Salah, these players give the ball away roughly about about 25% of the time, I think it is. Um, but that's encouraged. But I think you've, the difference is you, you've got to make sure you're doing it when the time's right. You've got to do it when the structure is right, when the protection is in place. And I think Klopp said after the Villa game, that wasn't really the case. Um, and as a result, we got opened up. I think Dean Smith said after the game, I think it was Dean Smith, might have been Ollie Watkins actually, but I think one of them mentioned that one of the things they worked on during the week was on the defensive side, you know, block off kind of, block off passing lanes really. And if you block off passing lanes, maybe Trent will force a pass, Gomez will force a pass, it'll go to the feet of John McGinn. And then straight away, Villa can get into straight on to Liverpool's last line. So it can cause problems. Um, you just got to make sure that you're, you're making good decisions on the ball and Liverpool just didn't do it. But the whole low percentage passes thing, it's not really an issue providing you've got the protection in place and providing everybody isn't doing the whole low percentage passes thing. Yeah, no, certainly. Let's then talk maybe about tactical switches. We have touched a bit on uh, sort of how Klopp does actually vary things up but Kyle Maguire and Janet Wiley have a similar question and I'm going to throw David Wilson's in there as well the question being do you think a change of system to 4-2-3-1 might help Liverpool be a bit more secure at the back and then also on top of that have a double pivot of Thiago and Fabinho together and David's part of the question is then I suppose that would allow uh, Diogo Jota to join the front three and maybe take a bit of pressure off Roberto Firmino Yeah I mean as I said 4 2 3 one can, can certainly help in certain matches particularly when you're against a team that are just inclined to contest for the point you know some teams are just happy to leave with a draw maybe even leave with a loss sometimes if it's just a 1-0 defeat so you know the whole the major difference really between 4-2-3-1 and 4-3-3 is that rather than selecting a third midfielder you're opting for an additional attacker instead so it just makes you that bit more attack minded that bit less focused on midfield protection slash control sort of thing but then if you if you deploy your player like Thiago who just naturally offers you an element of control, you will get that back despite the fact that you've got one less midfielder in your team. So, yeah, I think it's useful against certain teams. I don't think it's a big shift is needed. I still think Klopp will favour 4-3-3. Um, but, yeah, it's just about in certain matches. 
do you want three midfielders and three attackers or do you want to sacrifice a midfielder for an additional attacker really um, and I think Klopp's always had better midfielders than attackers outside the front three so it makes sense for, for Liverpool's using midfield three most of the time We've still 20 minutes to go, getting through as many of your questions as possible. Again, thanks for sending so many in. It's beginning to dawn on me now, Josh, just how many we do have. But change of uh, focus once again. And mentioned Firmino maybe benefiting from a change to 4-2-3-1. And he's going to be sort of the focus of the next few questions. And Terry Vincent says, is it time to seriously think about Firmino's role in the team? We love him when we know he is great for us. But the fact he's not scoring, do you think it needs to change things up? Maybe with Minamino playing or in fact both of them I think with Firmino one one thing I should probably say when it comes to judging him you know what you think of Firmino whether you think he's good or not whether you think he should be scoring more goals or not don't don't analyse him as though he's a number nine that's a traditional Premier League striker analyse him as though he's a number ten so if, if he was a number ten and he was playing exactly how he's playing would you still be concerned that he's not scoring enough? Or, or you know, main, that's the main thing, really, that's levelled at him, that he doesn't score enough. So if Firmino was number 10 and our two strikers were Salah and Mane, which is the case, really, in terms of how the system works, would, would, would he still be getting the criticism that he, that he gets? I think probably not. Um, and I think if he was to take Firmino out the side and put in a number nine who scores more goals, the system would be completely, well, well, yeah, it would be, it would be completely different really, especially if it's a fast number nine. Say for example, if you were to deploy, um, Jamie Vardy, if Jamie Vardy was to play as Liverpool's number nine, Jamie Vardy, instead of coming into midfield, he runs behind the defence. So you would have Mane running behind the defence, Salah running behind the defence, and Vardy running behind the defence. No players really occupying the 10 space. Um, and it's just not as well balanced. The dynamic isn't as clean. With Firmino in the middle and Mane and Firmino, sorry, Mane and Salah either side, both operating on the um, the inside with the preferred foot, it just it just works. It just There's not a lot of players that can do that. Um, and, it, and it naturally blends well for Liverpool. Kai Havertz could probably do it, but it's quite a rare player who can, who's basically a number 10, but can can work as a number nine. Minamino is one of the few who who can do it. I think he's, he, he is kind of like a mini Firmino, really. Um, but in terms of taking Firmino out and putting Minamino in from the start, I think Firmino, I wouldn't do it personally. Um, like the way Jota has been signed, potentially as a an heir to Sadio Mane, I think Minamino has been signed rather than an heir, more as just a backup. Um, when Firmino needs a rest, put Minamino in. Minamino can bring up the the intensity levels. He can press. You know, he's, his use of the ball is is really good. Keeps the ball cleanly, technically. So. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't. I wouldn't question that one too much. Although I do appreciate that Firmino's not in the best of form. Yeah, no, he he certainly isn't in the greatest of form right now. So then, in terms of 
uh, Firmino and his goal scoring. You've you have answered it in part there, but Christian Lee says, uh, how has Firmino's finishing developed during his time at Liverpool? What's his xG to his actual goals scored like, and what is it so far this season? Because he's another, like many Reds, who's worried about. Firmino's goal-scoring exploits so far this season and I suppose even going back to last year, just one home Premier League goal all season. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to expected goals, in his first, this is according to understat. so in his first season at Liverpool, Premier League only, this is, he had an XG of about seven and scored ten. So he's overperformed. Year after, an XG of about ten scored 11 that's pretty much level season after an xg of about 11 scored 15 so he overperformed again but then the past three seasons excluding the current season he's underperformed um by just under two then last season he underperformed by about eight and this season his xg so far is only 0.7 and he hasn't scored yet, so that's another performance of 0.7. No point in really mentioning that. So it's a bit all over the place, really. Um, initially started off as a slight overperformer. Last season, he was a big underperformer. Um, it basically just means he's probably quite an average finisher. Um, and I've spoken in the past about the way he finishes chances. I think he's quite a maverick in terms of the way he shoots. I think he. I don't think he shoots like a conventional forward would. He te- he seems to use the outside of his foot when he doesn't need to. You know, back heels, no luck finishes, and all this sort of stuff. So, I don't think it's his biggest strength. But um, I don't overly think it's that concerning. Considering what I've just said in terms of he is a number ten, not a number nine. So, would you be this concerned about his finishing, about his goal scoring, if he was playing as a strict number ten for Liverpool? Probably not. And on that point of him being a number 10 and with Salah and Mane, do we need to think more of them, of, of being the strikers in this team? And actually, that if you had a number nine who, like you said before, like Jamie Vardy, who went in behind, probably in terms of the balance of a team, wouldn't be possible to have three strikers on the pitch at any one time. So actually, with him in the team, it facilitates having two strikers as opposed to one lethal number nine. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the typical perception would be that, you know, the player with the number nine on his back and the player who plays in the middle of the pitch as the highest player is the, the man who's got to get the goals, the man who's the goal scorer. But it's not really how modern football works. You know, the, the, the main goal scorers in, in the modern game really are out wide. Um, unless, you're, unless you're Jamie Vardy, unless you're Lewandowski, you know, a player like that. But, you know, even Arsenal, you're, you know, you're, you're an Arsenal fan. Since Arteta moved into the, the Emirates, Aubameyang, Arsenal's biggest goal scorer, is playing on the left because he cuts inside with his right foot and he's able to finish. Um, Marcus Rashford is playing on the left. It just makes sense sometimes considering the dynamics of the system and, and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think for me, Salah and Mane are, are very much... They're not strikers, but they are forwards. They are the main goal goal getters for Liverpool sort of thing with Firmino f- firmly in third place and, and quite a way off really 
Yeah, certainly. Well, we're going to move on from Roberto Firmino now. We've spoken about the high line, but we are uh, for a moment going to speak about the defence and just the makeup of it. Sean O'Connor says, uh, as a centre-back is likely to be the area we recruit next, should aerial dominance be the main criteria? Not the reason for Gomez's poor game on Sunday against Villa, but it was the reason that Klopp replaced him with Lovren at Watford in February to deal with Deeney. So is that an area where Liverpool do need to look at and a dominant, another dominant centre-back to go alongside Virgil van Dijk? Well, what you've just said there is, is the key line for me. I think any centre-back that's signed by Liverpool has to be dominant. That, that's the key word. Regardless of whether he's good with the ball, all that sort of stuff, he has to be a dominant player when it comes to whoever he's facing or most players he's facing, he's able to just in a way, bully, basically. Um, but I'll take you back to a quote that Pep Linder said in his press conference the other day, pretty much sums it up perfectly. He said, as a pressing team, you have to accept a lot of long balls and second balls. So it's important that you have centre-backs who are good in the air so that they can win the first challenge. So in terms of the question, yeah, I'd say you're spot on. One of the biggest factors in a Liverpool centre-back is aerial dominance. Um, you know, huge factor. And I think it's it's weighted in the decision-making process as to who's suitable and who isn't. I think aerial prowess is, is weighted quite heavily. Whereas at the Etihad, for example, I think Manchester City maybe put a bit too much weight in whether a player is left-footed or right-footed sort of thing. Particularly as a centre-back, I don't think it... I think it matters, but... Not to the extent that you're sacrificing all kinds of aerial fragility and all this sort of stuff. So, obviously, you weigh defenders differently. The skills are weighted differently. And I think Liverpool put a lot on, a lot of emphasis on, on aerial dominance, yeah. Yeah, certainly. Uh, Shibu Sandu says, uh, I've said all season that Liverpool shouldn't be after a fourth-choice centre-back, but actually a partner for Van Dijk with Matip and Gomez fighting it out to be second fiddle. Uh, he asks about looking at Gomez's underlying numbers and how they stack up against other centre-halves around the world of a similar profile and age, etc., etc. But I know there's a player in particular that you like, Josh, who I'm sure you'd love to see Liverpool sign next summer, who has a release clause that kicks in in a certain day or Upamecano. Can you imagine him alongside Virgil Van Dijk? Yeah, well, I mean, that'd be a, that'd be a big thing. I think Upamecano plays on the left, on the left, doesn't he, with... Um which is where Van Dijk plays. I'm not really sure on that one. I have to double-check that. But he, he is, if you're looking for the heirs of Van Dijk or the next in line sort of thing, or another club wants their own version of Van Dijk, I would go down the route of, of Aubameyang. yeah. I think he's a he's a top player. In terms of being dominant, he is a dominant player, whether the ball's on the floor or whether it's in the air. But just to put Gomez's numbers into perspective, so last season, he was... 95 centre-backs in Europe's top five leagues that played over a 1,000 minutes and were under the age of 25. Um, so that's 95. Gomez ranked 24th for aerial success and 53rd for defensive dual success. Um, not particularly outstanding, but I don't entirely think you can look solely on numbers when it comes to defenders I think you have to consider a bit more than that um, and the numbers don't always capture what they do and I think if you watch Gomez 
I do think he's in control of most situations. I think he's certainly a lot faster than most centre backs, which comes into it when you when you're using a high line. Obviously, when you're running back towards your own goal, his recovery pace is great. Um, so yeah, I'm not overly concerned about Gomez. I do think he gets caught out every now and then, but how aggressive he is, and teams end up going in right behind him because he gets dragged out. I think Massip is a bit different. Um, but apart from the game against Villa, where I do think he was quite terrible, to be honest, I think he's he's one for one who's going to spend his whole career at Liverpool, hopefully. Yeah, certainly. Well, last couple of minutes, we're going to do some quick-fire questions to really rattle through some. But before we get to that, another one on the defence. And uh, Sorry, Joe Gomez, not the only one who's come in for some criticism after the Villa game, as, as you'd understand. A couple of people uh, asking questions about Trent Alexander-Arnold. We've got one just asking simply uh, from Tom, what do you make of Trent's start to the season? He's been sloppy for me. And Aidan as well uh, asks, would there be any logic in moving Van Dijk from the left to the right side of centre-back to help out Trent as teams do seem to be targeting that? And it would also mean that Gomez, therefore, would be alongside Andy Robertson, who might be a bit better defensively than Trent. Your thoughts on those, Josh? In terms of him being sloppy, I think maybe his impact, his, his usual impact, hasn't been quite as clear to see on Liverpool's game, particularly on the attacking side of things. Um, maybe, I mean, there's a rumour that he had coronavirus in, in pre-season. As a result, he didn't really play any of the pre-season games. So his pre-season has kind of been since we played Leeds. I think he looked good against Arsenal. Thought he would improve on that, but didn't really against Villa. But none of the team really did. Um, so I don't think that's too much of a concern. I think he'll just pick up, pick up speed, um, and his numbers look pretty normal. Um, he's averaging two key passes per per ninety this season. That means he's he's setting up two shots per ninety. Last season it was two point four. Season before it was one point seven five. So. Not a lot to worry about there, I don't think. Um, but I'd expect his influence to, to grow as the season progresses. Um, and what was the second part of that question? Should uh, Van Dijk and Gomez effectively swap oh, so yeah. there's more balance defensively? Yeah, I think I think one thing Klopp would worry about with that would be the message that it would send to Gomez, to Trent. It would just, it looks a bit desperate to to move Van Dijk over, you, you are kind of presenting the image that, you know, we, we need our best defender on that side because we look weak. And I think Van Dijk is, is naturally left-sided anyway. His cross-field diagonal passes that we use, that we saw against Arsenal quite a lot, he wouldn't really be able to do as effectively if he was on the right of the defence as opposed to the left. So it's sort of thought about, but I, I can't really ever see it happening. Right, OK, let's uh, just before we do the, the quick fire questions, a couple of uh, questions uh, just about general statistics. Thomas Stewart's got in touch, says, all right, boys, why do you think there's been so many goals in the Premier League? Does anything stand out in comparison to last year's data? Penalties. Um, penalties certainly stands out. There's a lot being given that maybe shouldn't have been given and weren't given last season. Obviously, the lack of pre-season. Is probably going to play a part on sharpness, on organisation sort of thing. Um, in terms of the data, I don't really think much has showed up. I, I, I haven't really checked whether there's more shots happening or not. Um, but I just think generally, when you think of 
I mean, this isn't entirely true, but when you think of attack and play and defensive play, you probably associate defending more with being trained on the training ground and it being a team thing. Whereas when it comes to attacking, it is a bit more individual, individualistic, really. So I think if anything's going to suffer when it comes to a lack of pre-season, it's probably going to be the defensive side of the game. Um, but it is, insane. and just on top of that as well, a lot of good players being brought to the league, a lot of good attacking players being brought to the league in comparison to seasons gone by. So, you know, it is difficult to keep these players out at the end of the day. Yeah, with Dave not being here, we, we shouldn't sort of say how well James Rodriguez has done, certainly not on the Liverpool podcast. But uh, anyway, let's... Uh, yeah, just, just one quick question uh, from Jim Matthew. Very quick answer here, Josh. Uh, is there a website from which we can find data you use in your analysis? Is there any resource available free of cost or for a nominal monthly fee? So the free of cost stuff, I would recommend understaff.com and I would recommend fbref.com when you first click on those sites you are just kind of inundated with numbers and it probably is a little bit intimidating but once you get to know the platform get to know the site it is really really useful especially if you know how to interpret numbers and stuff like that there's obviously Wisecout what we use but we use that mainly for clips because the, the, the stats on that on that site aren't entirely reliable and that is paid for as well so but yeah understanding an FB ref are more than good enough for, for you know, fanalytics sort of thing. Well, let's get then into some quickfire ones. We've got five questions here to rattle through. Maybe not one word answers, Josh, but as close to as you can. First one's from Blank Name. Thank you, Blank Name, for getting in touch. Says, who do you think will <laughs> score most goals for us this season? Uh, I probably lean towards Salah, simply because he shoots the most, takes the penalties, and yeah, I'm going to go with Salah. Next one is Mark Weeks, Brewster or Origi? Um, tough one. Brewster. But I think the difference here is that Brewster's at the start of his career, needs to play football and would be limited minutes at Liverpool. Origi, not so much. I think he's probably happy being fifth or sixth choice at Liverpool. We got twenty three and a half million for Brewster during the pandemic. Probably not gonna get that for the So I think all those things come into consideration when it comes to keeping one and selling one, as opposed to just keeping the best. Uh, Osman's got in touch and says, I don't know if he asked this before or since Marco Gruich has gone on loan to Porto, but says does Marco Gruich have a future at Liverpool? I don't think so personally. I think he's gonna be sold. I think we'll give him a lot of time. I think he's developed quite a bit as well. I think he's a good level player. Capable for probably a fair amount of Premier League teams, to be honest. Obviously spending time on loan at Porto now. Porto's a well-established European side. Um, but the competition and the standard that you have to reach now, obviously as Grouch's bar is raised, Liverpool's bar is raised as well, probably even higher. So to play in central midfield for Liverpool, you have to be really complete and you have to offer real solutions and I don't think Grujic is at that level whereby you know he's gonna he's gonna be good enough to to fill up a squad space I think he'll probably be sold these last two are brilliant ones oh sorry these last two are brilliant Carl Greenwood says if Liverpool brought Mbappe on the final day of the window we can all dream who would he replace in the front three Josh 
Uh, Sadio Mane. And the reason for that is because of the dynamic that we've spoken about. He can't, Mbappe can't play as Firmino. Mbappe can't really play as Salah because Salah's left-footed. Mbappe prefers his right. So if you were to keep the Liverpool dynamic that Klopp's kind of established over the past few years, Mbappe plays on the left of Liverpool's front three, which is where Mane plays. And it'd be interesting to see if, if anything in the future happens regarding one of them two. I don't think Farina will be sold, but I think there's a possibility that FSG, I think they did it in, the, in New York, uh, New York, Boston, with uh, the Red, Stock, Red Sox players. I think they, one of them, high profile player, was sold just to kind of to cash in, really. So it'll be interesting to see if. If Liverpool do that at some point with Salah or Mane, just to kind of a bit like what Werma did did with uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, he's at the end of his career. He's still good, but because he's at the end of his career, just kind of accept 100 million for him and move on. Right, last one. I think it's the best question of all of them that've been sent in. Actually, Andrew Moffat, this is where you earn your money, Josh. Start one, bench one, sell one. Allison, Virgil, Mane. I was hoping you weren't going to say this. <laughs> oh God. Uh, it depends. I need context on this. Is, is this considered in the current, current squad? Because yeah, I, 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 think, I think so. Allison. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's. I think it's fair. Sort of where Liverpool are at now. Um, what would you do if yeah. if I was to bench Allison? Adrian will play then. Is that what? Is that what that means? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's as of today. If you had to make this decision, what are you doing with all of these players? I am. Um, Selling Mane and oh god, I am probably benching Van Dyke. Um, mainly, honestly, it's it's mainly because Adrian's. <laughs> I just have zero faith in him. I think he's terrible, to be honest. <laughs> um, without being too harsh, it, whereas the backup for Van Dyke would probably be Fabinho with. Thiago in the midfield, which is fine. The backup for Mane would be Jota. And I think, although Mane's really unique and incredible player as well, I think getting a fast wide forward who's right-footed and scores goals is doable. You know, you think of Jadon Sancho, Marcus Rashford, Shunming Son. Diego Jota's just arrived. Diego Jota, Aubameyang. These players are quite popular, really. So I think Manny could be replaced in the market, but I think, yeah, it's a tough question. It's a horrible question, to be honest. I think that question, really, and how you've answered it, really, is all about the drop-off. In terms of who's next next cab off the rank in the Liverpool squad, where is the biggest drop-off? Probably in goal. Yeah. Well, that's it from us here on, on this edition of Analyzing Anfield. Thanks to absolutely everybody who sent in questions. We've tried to get through as many of them as we possibly can. Next week, of course, we'll be looking ahead to the derby. I think we're going to drag Dave back from his holidays for that one. But from myself, Guy Clark, thanks for joining us here on Analyzing Anfield. Josh Williams, as ever, absolute uh, expertise and insight as ever. But thanks for joining us. That's all for now. Goodbye. Thanks. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.